Most of us know certain stories where once a certain step is taken, the next step seems sure to follow. Maybe you think of the movie Top Gun, when once Maverick shows up, the next step that's sure to follow, he's going to do something arrogant and brash in a fighter jet. It's a guarantee it's going to happen, right? In, in, in the Bourne trilogy, once the asset shows up, it's only a matter of time until Bourne takes him out. Right? The, the sound of music, once Maria shows up, it's only a matter of time until the kids are singing. Right? Once the Colts game begins, it's only a matter of time until Matt Ryan fumbles. Like, the, 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 there's certain things, you can just think of these. Once one step is taken, the next one is sure to follow. It just feels like a guarantee. And in Genesis chapter 20, there's two similar storylines that follow this structure. One thing happens and the next is sure to follow. The first one is Abraham's repetitive falling into the same exact sin. In this case, it's lying. Stressful situation comes up, Abraham lies. Sometimes we call this a besetting sin. You see the, the title of the sermon, battling besetting sins. What's a, what's a besetting sin? It's one we continually return to, and at times it feels unavoidable for us. But the second storyline throughout Genesis 20 is the faithfulness of God to keep his promises in spite of our failures. He's the faithful promise keeper. We're the faithless ones, and yet he remains faithful. And we'll zoom in on both of these storylines this morning, but at a zoomed out level, you could summarize Genesis 20 like this. God's faithfulness gives hope in the face of besetting sins. God's faithfulness gives hope in the face of besetting sins. And so our outline today will sort of follow these two dominant themes of our besetting sins and God's faithfulness. And the passage layout is a little bit interesting. You heard Mindy read it there, but it's, it's basically this, this short narration at the beginning, the problem of our sins, and then there's two little conversations, right? God with Abimelech, and then Abimelech with Abraham, and then it concludes with this short narration of the solution, God's faithfulness. So we'll sort of move around this morning, weave through different parts of the story, but as anchor points, we'll just have a two-part outline. First point, the threat of our sins. And second point, the promise of God's faithfulness. The threat of our sins, the promise of God's faithfulness. So we'll start with that first point, the threat of our sins. I hope you've got your Bibles open to Genesis 20. You'll leave them open as we'll continually go back to it. Take a look at verse one. Here's what we read. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived in Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. You see, what, what Abraham is doing here, what we're told, is he's moving towards the promised land as he's supposed to. All the way back in Genesis 12, God calls him, says, go, I'm going to tell you where to go. And Abraham is walking in obedience here. He's doing what he's supposed to do. And so the first thing we need to see on the threat of our sin is that the threat comes at all times, even in the midst of our obedience, there's still a threat of sin to be seen and to be acknowledged and to be on the lookout for. At the end of chapter 21, the next chapter, verse 34, it tells us this journey is taking place mostly in the land of the Philistines the land that God is going to give. So Abraham is moving in the right direction here, yet there's still a major threat 
of our sin. Now, there's a contrast to see from last week. Lot had gotten bogged down in this present world. He wanted to make Sodom his home. And Abraham, on the contrary, is not getting bogged down. He's continuing sojourning. He's got the, the pilgrim spirit that we're supposed to see. This world is not his home. No, he's just a passing through, as the song used to say, or still does, rather. But even in his sojourning, he still encounters his fears and reverts back to his sinful ways, namely, lying about his wife. So let's look back at verse 2 now and continue the story. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Abraham, what are you doing here? Continual theme, right? And if you uh, look on the screen, you can see in chapter 12, this same sort of thing happened already. Verses, verses 11 through 13. Speaking of Abraham, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they'll kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. So this is a recurring pattern of sin in Abraham's life. It's like each time we come to this stressful situation, I'm afraid of what's gonna happen, we revert to lying to protect and preserve ourselves, at least himself. He's not seeking to protect and preserve his wife very well here. And the threat of his sin is that most fundamentally that it's threatening the promises of God. Right, giving away his wife could threaten this offspring that's supposed to come through the life and the line of Abraham. I mean, you just have to think about Satan here sort of licking his chops. If I could get him to give away Sarah, then the promise of this offspring that would undo the curse of sin, wow, Satan thinks I could win. I've almost got him. Right, there's a major threat to the promises of God that we see in Abraham's disobedience. And God has been really clear over and over. This promised one will come through you, Abraham. Abraham was supposed to bring a blessing to the nations. Was that not part of the promises of Genesis 12? And yet his disobedience here threatens that promise of God as now Abraham is bringing a, bringing a curse to the nations. Curses are falling on them because of Abraham. This is not how it's supposed to be. But it's not just the promises of God that are threatened by Abraham's sin. It's also those that are around him that are threatened by his sin. Look at verse, verses 3 and 4. We continue on. Verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman you have taken, for she's a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Wait, can, can you just imagine this as Abimelech for a second? You have a dream, God comes to you and says, you're a dead man. <laughs> That's not the kind of dream you want to have. And you've got to think there's utter shock from this guy because he's innocent. What in the world? God, what are you talking about what I do? It's like you got called down to the principal's office and you're racking your mind on the, what did I do? What did I do? Which thing did he nab me for this time? The police officer pulls you over. You know how fast you were going? That, that internal battle. And, and Abimelech rightly says, I, I didn't do anything. What, what, what's the problem? What's going on here? The point is, 
he's threatened by Abraham's sin, and our sins affect far more than ourselves. Right? There's this myth in our world today that as long as it's not hurting somebody else, it ought to be okay. And there's no sin that any of us commit that doesn't hurt someone else. Now, Abraham certainly didn't see the way it was affecting Abimelech. It was a dream from God. It was just Abimelech and God who were in this. But it was still affecting him. And similarly, we may not see how our sins are impacting and threatening and negatively affecting others, but they always are. We see that sin brings death, James 1.15, and in narrative form that's sort of, uh, well, it's not sort of, it's explicitly said here. And it brings out the idea that, that we touched on last week, that our, our sin nature tells us that it's okay, this sin isn't really going to bring death. We used the analogy, if you recall last week, of people that bring dogs, yappy dogs, onto airplanes in those little purses, and we see our sin a bit like those little dogs. This thing can be controlled, it's small, it can be contained in this little zip-up, and that's not how our sin is at all. It's that full-grown wine that's going to devour you. Abraham's kind of thinking, oh, this is not a big deal. I can lie a little bit on the side about who my wife is. It's, we can contain this. Think, no, 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 you've completely misunderstood Abraham. And at the end of the story, it's important that we, we, we say this, that at the end of the story, Abraham ends up receiving this material blessing God blesses him in a way that is not normal and should not be expected by us. So before we try and you know, take Genesis 20 out of context and make it say things it doesn't, recognize there are unique things happening to Abraham that we should not expect to happen to ourselves, even though God is still faithful at all times. Right? Yes, the sin of Abraham threatens the promises of God. It threatens those around him. But it also threatens to warp his own thinking into really strange ways. Let's skip down just a little bit in the passage and look at verses 11 and 12. We see this warped thinking. Here's where Abraham is justifying himself. He's making excuses. Verse 11, we read, Abraham said, I did it because I thought, there's no fear of God at all in this place, and they'll kill me because of my wife. Besides, she's indeed my sister, the, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. You see, sin is a threat here because it warps Abraham's thinking into making a wrong judgment about the people in the land. They're super wicked. They're gonna kill us for sure. And he uses a terrible rationale to justify his actions. He says, well, there's a way that technically this statement can be true, but it's obvious that I'm being deceitful and he justifies himself. Friends, we need to reject that impulse where I say, well, technically there's a way what I'm saying can be true. Yes, you're still being deceptive. That's still a sin. Don't, don't find that way out and give yourself excuses. Maybe you can remember a time in your life where you said, I don't know how I ever thought that was a good idea, but somehow I did. You remember something like that? Sin warps your thinking. So you start to make wrong judgments about what's gonna happen and really terrible rationale for the decisions that you're going to make because you're not honoring God. You're not following his ways. We pick up in verse 13, we continue. Here's what the scripture says. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place which we come, say of me, he is my brother. 
Because the absurdity just continues to grow. Think for a moment about what Abraham said. Just think about this. When God caused me to wonder, yeah, it's kind of God's fault. He sent me out on my way here, and I, I, mean, I kind of had a choice, but not really. It's, he sent me over here. And so, I mean, gosh, what's a guy supposed to do? And he says to his wife, Sarah, here's how you can be kind to me. Sin. Tell a lie. That, that, what's the best way for you to show your kindness to me? Lie about this. <laughs> like, what? what in the world is going on? This is so bizarre. And the thing about it is, we don't actually know how many times this pattern took place of coming to this new place, being afraid, lying. We, we read about it in Genesis chapter 12. We read it again in chapter 20. But the idea of the text is that this was an ongoing pattern. Whenever we come to this place, here's the kindness that you do to me. And so what it it reinforces for us is this this fact that sin is absolutely blinding in our lives. Sin makes you stupid. It makes you excuse things that are just inexcusable. We accept things as normal that ought to be completely absurd. And so when, when we know these truths, and we start to think about how we apply them, one of, the, one of the things we ought to be thinking about is as we see brothers or sisters making foolish decisions and living in sin, we ought to love them enough to gently point it out, recognizing that sin is blinding and I'm likely to miss things in my life and you're likely to miss things in your life and we need to love each other enough to gently say, brother, have you thought about this? Sister, I, I, I've noticed this pattern, and I'm not entirely sure if it's this or that, but we ought to, we ought to think about this together. In fact, w- one of the methods for this kind of gentle way of pointing things out I heard is called OIC, Observe, Interpret, Clarify. Say, hey, I've observed this pattern over a period of time. It's not just one thing I saw. I've observed this pattern, and I interpret it. It kind of looks like this to me. Could you clarify and help me to see what's going on there? It's a simple, that can be a tough conversation to enter into, right? Like, how do, I, how do I point this out? Oh, I see. Observe, interpret, clarify. And if somebody brings that to you, have the humility and the gratitude in your heart to them that they would actually point it out. Because that's a tough conversation to begin. They may have judged rightly, they may have judged wrongly, but be grateful that you have friends in your life who love you enough to gently point things out and be cautious in pointing things out as well, right? But the, the, the fact of the matter here is, is Abraham has failed on a whole host of levels, one of which is to love and to lead his wife, right? He's not loving her, he's not leading her. We jump ahead to the New Testament, Ephesians 5. He's not loving his wife as Christ loved the church. He's not washing her in the word as we're, husbands are commanded to do. 1 Peter 3, verse 7, Husbands, love your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Whoa. Guys, there's a serious warning for you. Honor your wives. Love them in an understanding way. Be gentle so that your prayers may not be hindered. You're called to lay down your life for your wife, not to criticize the food. You're called to be gentle with her, not to make harsh demands of her. You're called to listen carefully to her, to know her needs and her wants, to anticipate them. 
There's no space here for you to be a bully, to intimidate. Your prayers will be hindered, 1 Peter 3 says. And all of this seems so simple and straightforward, and yet Abraham falls over and over. And maybe you find yourself this morning feeling really convicted that that's how you're behaving, and you're falling in that way. But there's a, a likelihood that a lot of us are failing in different ways, over and over, and I keep coming back to this same place. You know the sin pattern that you're drawn to, you know how you get there, and yet you can't seem to avoid that same destination of sin. Maybe it's anger, or gossip, or gluttony, or some form of sexual sin. These are, as I said earlier, what we often call besetting sins. We keep finding our way back to them, and even though we don't want to, we keep ending up in that same place. So I want to suggest four ways that we can fight against some of these besetting sins. You say, Justin, I don't want to keep getting there, but what do I do about it? Because I've been in this pattern for months, years, decades perhaps. How do I fight against these besetting sins that seem to always be so near? Four suggestions. Here's the first one. Recognize the pattern. Recognize the pattern. So, So for Abraham, what this was, first off, it started with fear. He got to a new place where they were afraid of what the people would say. He's afraid of people who don't know God. And then he starts to rationalize. Well, technically she's my half-sister, so it's kind of some, I'm afraid first, fear man more than God, and then I rationalize the step I'm about to take, and then he starts to shift blame. Well, God is the one who actually had me wandering here. So, so this is the pattern for Abraham. He's like, man, I'm afraid, I start to rationalize, I start to shift blame. This is the pattern that I've been on. For some of us, this is like a well-traveled road. Like, you know a road you've driven on a thousand times, and when you get on that road, you're still paying attention, but you don't really have to think about when the turn is coming up, when the speed limit slows down, when it accelerates. Yeah, you're driving, you're paying attention, but you don't have to think about it that much. For some of us, for many of us, most of us, that's what some of these besetting sins are like. Somehow, I just kind of ended up turning right I ended up in that driveway that I didn't want to be in. And I've landed there. And it just happened. And I was in charge. I'm responsible for myself. But it just happened so naturally. Friend, you need to recognize this is happening sub, well, maybe it's consciously, maybe it's subconsciously, but you need to recognize the pattern. Whether it's a relationship you're going back to that you ought not be in. Whether it's a place, maybe a physical place you ought not be. Or a mental place you ought not be or an app that you ought not have open. You recognize the pattern. I ask underneath that, what's motivating me here? Abraham, fear leads to this rationalization. For us, is it it boredom? Is it fear like Abraham? Is it anxiety? Hey, when I start to feel anxious, I know there's a pattern for me to go down this road. Is it stress? Look, some of these things are not necessarily sinful. We just recognize that this is the pattern and I need to know myself and know what's going on so that I don't end up in that place and I make sure that I'm really paying attention and turning left instead of right so I don't end up there. It's like if you've recently moved, sometimes you accidentally drive back to the old house just without thinking about it. Well, I gotta think about it. I turn left at this road, not right at this road. That's what this is like in our fight against sin. So, so you look backward and remember the path 
to that sin, but you also battle by looking forward at the consequences that come from our sin. That's the, the second, second step towards battling besetting sins. Remember the consequences. We, not, not too long ago, we had a minor gas leak at our house. And uh, so we had to remember the consequences. Now, what, we hadn't had one of these gas leaks before, so it's kind of what we'd seen on TV. But the consequences I'm looking ahead towards is like, this place could blow up. So because it could be really bad, somebody says, hey, don't turn on any light switches because the little spark there could cause a major problem. Okay, that's a consequence. I'm going to step back and change my behavior. We're going we're gonna to get our kids across the street so they're a little further away. We're going to call the fire department right away, call the gas company right away. I'm going to look ahead and see the consequences that are really bad, and that informs my action right now and gives some urgency to it. Now, this is Abraham. If he's looking ahead, remembering the consequences, he's saying, man, what's the destruction that's going to happen in my marriage when I tell my wife it's kind of her to lie about me? This guy, Abimelech, is going to feel like he's sinned. Verse 9, he says, how have I sinned against you? And I'm going to put this load of false guilt on him where he's wondering and saying, what did I do? I don't want to do that to my wife or to Abimelech. Abimelech, his family, are struck with some kind of a, a sexual dysfunction. Verses, verse 6, God says, I prevented you from, doing some, from touching Sarah. Verses 17 and 18, it comes back and says, I healed you and all the women. You look and you see the consequences, like, man, those are bad consequences. Abimelech's men are gripped by fear, verse 8 tells us. There's, there's all these consequences that are downstream from Abraham's sin, and he would be wise to look ahead and say, man, this is not worth it. I should make a better choice here. And for us, I wonder what those might look like. Maybe it's with your kids. You've responded in an angry outburst, and two, three, four weeks later, they're still just on pins and needles around you. See, I'm not mad, guys. It's okay. Relax. I said, yeah, but I don't know when you're going to be mad and when you're not. So I'm always nervous. Yeah, see those consequences downstream. Remember them so that you can scroll back and say, I'm going to be gentle and patient even as I feel this anger welling up in me. Maybe it's a different kind of relationship with a friend or a boss or a spouse where trust has been destroyed by an action you took. And the same sort of thing happens. You get weeks, months down the road. You're thinking, I've been doing a good job. And they're saying, it's hard for me to trust you right now because you did this, this, and this before remember the broken trust that will come from your actions. It's not easily repaired. Remember those consequences on the front end to help you make a better decision. Third, realize you have a choice. Realize you have a choice in killing sin and in growing with holiness. I think one of Satan's primary lies when it comes to our besetting sins is to tell you that fighting is an absolute waste of time. This is who you are. This is how you're always going to be. Don't bother. Friends, nothing could be further from the truth. We have to see that as a lie from Satan, to name it as a lie from Satan, and to reject it. 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. God is faithful and he's provided a way that you may stand up under it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And then verse 14 says, Therefore, beloved, flee from idolatry. You have a choice. 
Take action. Flee from idolatry. James 4, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Your besetting sin is not a foregone conclusion. You can resist. God will fight with you and deliver you. Guys, look look at me. You, You have to see this. There is a way out. It doesn't have to follow the path that it has before. Don't believe the lie that it's a foregone conclusion. You have a choice. God calls you to fight, and he will fight with you and for you. Fourth, we respond in faith. So you recognize the pattern that led me here. You look ahead to the consequences that come after. I realize I have a choice, and then I respond in faith. Respond in faith as as the old hymn says, that he breaks the power of canceled sin. It takes faith to believe that the sin that was canceled at the cross, its power is broken over my life because it's so easy to see how I submit myself to it. He sets the prisoner free. It takes faith to believe that there's actually forgiveness. Romans 8, 1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I've said it before, sometimes that's the hardest verse to believe in the whole Bible. It takes faith to believe there's real forgiveness and no condemnation if you're in Christ Jesus. It takes faith to believe that the promises of God are better than the pleasures of the world. This looks so good right now for a short time. No, God, I'm gonna have faith that it's better to deny myself. It's gonna be a difficult road, but you will be with me and to stick to your promises and to live by them even as it makes my life tougher in the short term, is better. Maybe that response of faith for you is recognizing by faith that sin always brings death. You think you can contain it in one of those little zip-up purses, and you can't. I'm reminded of uh, the the old jingle that when I was in elementary school, the the firefighters would come on fire prevention week, and it was, don't play with fire, don't play with fire, don't play with fire, because if you do, you might not ever play again. You guys ever heard that one? Nope? Okay, just me. I'm responding in faith to them that they're right. Like, I've not had a house fire. But what they say is that you can't mess around with this. And so I'm I'm taking them at their word. And I don't play around with fire. Do you take God at his word like you ought to take the firefighter at his word? Don't play around with this. Or do you think you know better? I can can dance here. I can walk on coals and not be burned. I heard it said one mark of a godly person is that they fear sin more than they fear suffering. God, give me the faith to believe. Help me to fear sin more than I fear suffering. There's all sorts of threats from our sin. We see a lot of them here in the passage from Abraham. And we can see them in our own lives. We need to recognize those. But we also need to recognize that Genesis 20 is telling us a story of hope that's given in the midst of our sin because of the faithfulness of God. That brings to our second point, the promise of God's faithfulness. First, the threat of our sin, but then secondly, the promise of God's faithfulness. And and all throughout this series, living in the gap, where God has promised one thing, and my present reality doesn't seem to match up. I'm in the gap, and I know one day Jesus is coming back, and everything will be made right. There will be no more sin, no more suffering, no more tears, no more death. Praise the Lord, I'm looking forward to that day, but I'm not there yet. And in the gap, it's tough. 
All through this series, we've heard a continual emphasis on claiming the promises of our faithful God. His promises are unchanging. His promises are filled with mercy. His promises are for our good. His promises cannot be thwarted. Our sinful decisions will not stop his promises. Amen? But I gotta tell you, as we've walked through Genesis, at times it's felt a little bit repetitive on the promises of God. And in this section of the Bible, let me tell you, it is repetitive. (laughs) Don't miss that. The first book of the Bible, we have God laying out the foundation for his people, saying, I know who you are. And I know, as the old hymn says, I know that you are prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. You're prone to leave the God you love. So here's my heart, Lord, taken Seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Friends, we must know who God is if we're going to fight against these besetting sins with any success at all. You have to know his promises, you have to know his faithfulness, and you have to cling to those realities. These promises, these realities about who God is, those are what carry us. As as Spurgeon said, God's promises are longer than life, they're broader than our sins, they're deeper than the grave, and they're higher than the clouds. All that to say that foundations of core theology really matter in our daily life, in putting sin to death. And and we live in a time, sadly, where in the American church, we are told that theology is mostly unnecessary. We're told we need something more relevant, something less decisive, or divisive, rather. Wrong word there, sorry. But what the American church is struggling with is not too much theology, but really bad theology and too much of that. It's like we're fighting a deep-seated infection of sin with nasal spray and lotion. Maybe it makes you feel a little better for the moment, but there's no real power to change from it. Ligonier Ministries, the the ministry of the late R.C. Sproul does this study every two years called the State of Theology. And I don't generally put a ton of weight in these survey things because I just think the metrics are are wacky a lot of the times. Uh, But this one I tend to pay attention to. And I want to share a bit of it with you because I think it's so critical that we see where we're going wrong here. And a a word of warning, the results are really ugly from the study that came out a a month or two ago, but it's worth us paying attention to. All right, so so you see on the screen here, the State of Theology uh, survey Here's four statements that everyone had to agree with to to take this survey. One, the Bible is the highest authority for what I believe. Two, it's very important for me personally to encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their savior. Three, Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of my sin. Four, only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. So so I share that to say, this isn't just like some random thing like who out there wants to take a Christianity test. Like, okay, that seems like this is a a pretty good base of people who have a decent grasp on what Christian theology is, what the Bible says about these things. And yet when you take that subset, notice these results. 73% Jesus is a created being. Agree with that statement. 58%. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 55%, everyone sins a little, but most people are basically good. 
It's not up there. Somewhere in the mid-40s, 44% I think said Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. And 29% agreed that God learns new information as, the, as time goes forward and adapts as he learns new things. Like, I hope you hear these things and just internally gasp, like, what is going on? Friends, when the majority of Christians don't know who Jesus is or what humans are or what acceptable worship is, we're in trouble, And the loss of core theology is akin to cutting out someone's heart and hoping the blood keeps pumping and cutting out the lungs and hoping that you can continue to breathe. We're living in a theological crisis in the church. So maybe, just maybe, God did get it right in Genesis when he began the Bible with a heavy emphasis on his character and his promises. God actually knows better than us, you think? We see it clearly being lived out. So friends, we need serious medicine, not just Band-Aids and triple antibiotic. And in Genesis 20, what are these serious promises of God and of his character that we go to that gives hope in the face of our besetting sins? What are they? Let's walk through a couple of these. One One of the first ones you see right off the bat, and we've said this over and over, is that God is faithful to show mercy. He's faithful to show mercy. In this case, it was in a dream. He shows up in a dream of all things to Abimelech to reveal that there's been sin committed. He's the one taking initiative to show mercy. He's the sovereign one intervening. And in a sense, you get chapter 19 and chapter 20 as parallel accounts. Chapter 19, the heading in many Bibles says God rescues Lot. Chapter 20 I think it'd be much more appropriate if it just said, God rescues Abraham. He mercifully, sovereignly intervenes in totally different ways to save them from themselves. Precisely what God loves to do, to show mercy. He's not just faithful to show mercy in revealing sin, but also in striving with you against sin. That's great news. It'd be bad if he just showed you your sin and said, hey, good luck, buddy. He said, no, I'll show it to you and be faithful to mercifully strive with you against it. Look back at verse six of Genesis chapter 20. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you've done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. See him striving with Abimelech there. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he's a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. See, God is the one who would keep Abimelech from touching Sarah. He intervenes, he strives with him. Jude 24, chapter one, verse 24, says, now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling. Now notice, God doesn't magically do all the work and we just sit back and do nothing and God takes the temptation away. Right, you're called to work together on this, but God is striving with you so that Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. How does that work? Well, just turn over to the next page, Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's your job. 
for it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's giving you the strength and the desire so that when you say, Jesus, I feel like I don't have the desire to fight nor the strength to fight, please help me. He says, I will, I already promised I would. That's really good news, that God is merciful to strive with you against sin. What are his other promises? He accepts us by faith, not by our own goodness or our own lack of goodness. Right, because even in the midst of this story of Abraham's failures, it's clear that God accepts Abraham on the basis of faith, not his good works. Genesis 15, 6, one of the most important verses in this whole chunk here. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Justification by faith alone. You're saved by faith alone, not any works that you could do. The theological term that I'm sure would get get tripped up on that test might be good to write this down. Imputed righteousness. I didn't give it to the people to put on the screen, so I'll spell it because that's an awkward one if you're not used to it. I-M-P-U-T-E-D. Imputed. Put into you righteousness. As opposed to infused righteousness. God says, by faith, I'm going to take my righteousness and put it into you, into your bank account. It's the difference between a transplant and a transfusion. You get this whole new kidney, it's been transplanted, as opposed to, hey, you're doing pretty good, let me just give you a little bit of help, a little transfused righteousness, just pump a little extra blood into your stream because you're down a few pints. God accepts us on the basis of faith, not our own goodness or our badness. We see God's faithful to hear our prayers and to answer them. He cares about our lives. That survey, I didn't bring this up, the Holy Spirit, many said, was not a personal being, just a force. As a personal being, he knows what's happening in your life. He cares about it. He's interested in his intervening, not just some random force that's out there. Verse seven, we read about Abraham praying for Abimelech. And isn't the irony thick there? Abraham, the unfaithful one, is called to pray for the faithful one. But the even better news than that Abraham was able to pray and that God heard his prayers and acted upon them is to think about the heavenly prayer scene right now. Hebrews 7 says that Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. So that as Satan is the accuser of the brethren, bringing my sins to the Father, hey, Father, look what, look what this cook guy's been doing. You should judge him. You should be angry at him. Pour out your wrath. Jesus simultaneously is always living to make intercession. Romans 8 says he's seated at the right hand of the Father consistently, constantly bringing intercession, saying, no, imputed righteousness, not infused righteousness. See, my righteousness on his account. That's good news. We cling to that. We fight from the victory, not for the victory, because Jesus has already won it. And not only does God accept us on the basis of faith alone, he also blesses us on the basis of faith alone. Look at verse 17. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. You see, the the original promise given 
was that those who blessed Abraham would receive a blessing. Back to Genesis 12. What does Abimelech do? He honors Abraham. And what happens? He receives this blessing of fruitfulness. And Abimelech, in turn, honors Abraham in ways that Abraham doesn't really deserve. Right? He gives these, these animals and the silver and all this stuff. And it's like, wait a second. Abraham doesn't really deserve this right now, does he? Why is he receiving this? Certainly not because of his goodness. It's a picture for us of receiving the blessings of God by faith and not by our own works. It's a picture of the unworthy one receiving blessing. In fact, in the midst of that, verse 16, if you look back, there's that little sarcastic comment from King Abimelech. He says, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. He's not your brother. He's your husband. Yeah, you guys have not pulled the wool over my eyes here, but that's okay because I'm gonna see this blessing to give to you rather than your own faults right here. It's as if Abimelech, the righteous one, takes it on himself to bring reconciliation and to pay the cost to get there. And in a simple way, what a glorious picture of the gospel. That Jesus, the truly righteous one, would take it on himself to come to earth and live the perfect life that we didn't live and pay the penalty, the death we should have died, to bring a reconciled relationship between us and God. That's beautiful. So if you're here this morning and you don't yet know Jesus, you're not yet a Christian, I want you just to think about that message, that Jesus came to this earth knowing your sin, knowing mine, knowing all of it, knowing the sins, the, the darkness in your heart that you don't even know about yet. That's okay, I know that. And I'm gonna come and I'm gonna do what's required. I'm gonna live a perfect life, I'm gonna die the terrible death so that I can be the one that brings reconciliation. If you, by faith, will trust in me, Your sins can be forgiven. You can have a relationship with God and eternal life and joy forever. Friends, this is really, really good news. And it totally changes the way you fight as a Christian against besetting sins, knowing you're fighting from the place of victory, not for the victory. Let's pray.